Uh, normally on Easter, Waypoint starts a series. It's um, kind of what we've done for years, and we tend to do that because when we're able to start a series, we're thinking maybe somebody comes and visits, and, and if we do a good enough job, maybe they'll stay with us for longer than just one visit. That's the hope that we have in mind, except this Easter falls on the first Sunday of spring break, which means a third of you will be gone, another third of you will be focused on hating the people who are gone, and the other third will have no idea what's happening. They're going to go, what just happened? Why are people gone? Um, so it's a terrible time to start a series, and so this is what we're doing. Over the next few weeks, we're, we're going to roll into Easter, and we've decided to do a little series where um, the goal is to bring Easter alive for you. Like the stuff that's happening in Easter, we want it to be a real part of your life. We want you to think about it. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to do for the next few weeks. Now, here's the thing. Because it's the first Sunday of spring break, Easter, that's a huge opportunity for you to invite friends and family to come to that. There's going to be a lot of space here. So we thought we would help you with your inviting technique. Check this clip out. Hey, uh, you want to go to church with me on Easter? Mm, you know, I already went at Christmas time, but uh, okay. Great. Just tell me the date. April Fool's. So you don't want me to go to church with you? I, I just asked you. You did, sorry. Just, just tell me the date. April Fool's. Okay, I need you to be serious right now. What? I'm being serious. I, I want you to go to church with me on Easter. April Fool's. No, I'm not going to fall for this. So the answer to your invite is no, I'm not going to go to church with you on Easter. What, what are you doing? I, I want you to go to church with me. I think you'll really like it. Let me guess, April Fool. Yes! No. Please. No. Wow. Okay. I'll go. Great. April Fool's. Exactly. No, I was just playing along. What are you talking about? Aren't you playing a joke on me? No, I am inviting you to go to church with me on Easter. Okay. I'll go. Great. Pick you up at eight. April Fool's. When is Easter? Easter is on Sunday, April 1st. April Fool's Day. Just to be clear, we want you to invite somebody to Easter, April Fool's. Um, and, and there'll be space here. We hope you'll do that. Next week, just want to let you know, uh, as part of our Easter Live series, we're going to do a Passover meal with each other. We're going to fill the room with tables. If you're upstairs, we're going to ask you to join us downstairs for that. In fact, we, we've been having lots of technical difficulties this morning all over the place. If the picture is still not upstairs, you can join us downstairs. There's room in the back. You can um, find your way in, and we'd love to have you join us. Uh, but here's the thing. That meal was established thousands and thousands of years ago. As observant Jews still do it today. And uh, the imagery of that, the stuff that's in there, I think is pretty cool. So I hope you'll come back and be a part of that. Uh, I, sidebar, I need help. We actually have to set the table up in a certain way that morning, and then we have to reset the table so they're a certain way for, for this crowd. So if that's something that you might want to do, might want to help with, there's a pink sign-up sheet out in the lookout hall. If you go over to the information center and say, yeah, I'd, I'd be willing to help set up tables and get that stuff kind of around, 
um, let me know that. I'll contact you on Monday, and we'll get some stuff arranged so that you can do that. This morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at something in the Easter story that doesn't make a lot of sense. Now, um, I grew up in church. I grew up hearing this story, and I, I maybe even taught on this. I don't know. I've tried to think back if I've taught on it or not. I'm sure I have. If I did, what I taught, I don't agree with anymore. I don't think it's right. Um, and, and it has nothing to do with, oh, I just changed my mind because I want to. I think there's really good reasons to consider a different view on this. But just to warn you, what I'm going to share with you this morning is not the majority held view. If you would go and look in almost all commentaries, they're going to say something else. And here's what I think has happened. For many commentaries that have been written in the years past, and we still use those, they're really helpful, they didn't consider cultural context as something that they would really drill down in and think about. And so sometimes they missed what was happening in the culture or they missed the images or pictures that um, Jesus intended to be there that had an influence for people who couldn't read. They, these were intended to be pictures that were shared that had value and importance. And when you don't consider those, you might actually miss out on what was intended there. I think another one of the problems that we're going to run into is a small translation area, um, error. It was close. But in this case, close isn't good enough to get us where we're going. Um, so here's, here's what I'm hoping to accomplish. Uh, this is going to be one of those weird mornings where we're going to have to look at a lot of stuff. When we're going to rush through scriptures, I'm going to pile a whole bunch of stuff on your plate, and then we're going to start drawing some conclusions together. And by the end of it, what I hope is that you'll have a better understanding of how much you are loved by God, more than when you came in here. If you're a skeptic and maybe you've read this section of scripture and you've always kind of wondered about it, I hope that what we talk about this morning will help you understand there's more going on in the heart of God towards you and maybe that'll allow you to take steps towards him and the love that he has for you. So that's, that's uh, what I'm planning. Uh, let's get to the story. Let me give you some background and get you to the place um, where things get a little different. This is the last week of Jesus' life. He has taken his disciples to Jerusalem, and he's told them along the way what's going to happen there. We're going to go look at that eventually. He uh, comes in the triumphal entry. He goes to the temple and teaches. He casts money changers out. He has set up the Passover meal. He's actually gone to the Passover, he's established communion, he's washed feet, he's looked at Peter and said, by the time the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me. He's identified his betrayer by saying, you're going to dip in the same bowl that I dip in, and Judas does that, and Judas has left now to go and betray Jesus. And Jesus, with the rest of his disciples, the eleven, decides to go to a place to pray, and that's where we're going to pick up the story. So we're in Matthew chapter 26, verse 36, and it says this, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. Now he sets the group down, but he takes three with them. He takes his three main guys, and they go off a little bit, and this is a really emotional, intense time. Jesus knows what he's about to face. And so we find him saying this to three, okay, to um, Peter, James, and John. He says, 
My soul is overwhelmed, in verse 38, with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me at this time. So Jesus is intensely feeling this moment. He, he says, man, I, I'm to the point of death, I feel a sense of sorrow. And then he walks off. Now, now listen, when we read these sections of scripture, we have to be really careful. Because what we do is we read it from our perspective. And when I say our perspective, sometimes I mean our cultural perspective, but sometimes it's just our own human perspective. And we read this sense that Jesus had sorrow, and we're thinking about, you know what? Somebody's going to come and torture him and kill him. And he's feeling lots of sorrow for that because if I was in his place, that's how I would think too. And this is where it gets complicated because Jesus was 100% man. He was 100% God too. How do you do those at the same time? I don't know. Much bigger than I am. Things that I can't understand. But he, he wrestled with the same things. He had the same kind of limitations that we had as man. He, get, he got hungry, right? He had those kind of moments. But here's what's different about Jesus than, it's, than about you and me. He had a relational connection with God that we only crave. We dream about, but we fall short over and over and over again. We fail that relationship with God. He didn't. He was so connected to God that the stuff God was concerned about, he was concerned about. That kind of thing was on his mind. And so when we read something, we only think it's from our human perspective and that would make a lot of sense. Well, you gotta be careful because this is what happens when we read these texts is we think like we would think and Jesus is not like us. He has a, a real Genuine connection with God that has changed the way he thinks, processes, lives in every way, shape, and form. It's why what happens next gets so odd. We read it as a human, and I think there's more to this. In verse 39, going a little further, he separates himself from the three now. He fell his face to the ground and prayed, and apparently loud enough that this could be heard and recorded. And he said this, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Almost all the other translations would translate this, let this cup pass from me, which is far closer to um, the Greek word that would be in there anyway. And the NIV often changes words to try to help you understand the meaning, and, and sometimes it can get you a little further away from what was intended. In this case, Jesus is saying, let this cup pass from me. I want this to go away. Now, I, I, I understand the traditional view of this. I've grown up with it. I've heard it. And the view of this is that um, what we're witnessing right here in this moment is Jesus embracing his humanity. He, like you and me, would be looking down the road and understanding, my death is coming, I'm gonna be tortured, this is gonna be terrible. If there's any way that, I, that we could find to not do this, that's what I choose. In, in other words, um, yeah, I'll do it, but I really don't want to. I'll follow your will, but what, how this is gonna turn out for me is not really good. Except the implications of what he's saying are huge. 
These are significant things. See, the whole purpose of Jesus coming, of, of eventually going to the cross and dying and raising again, it's just this simple. We've done stuff that has alienated us from God. God can't relate to us because we've chosen to sin. That's the way we call it. We do our own thing. We go our own direction. We're gonna, we say what we want. We do what we want. We think what we want. We don't honor God with the way we choose to live. And that breaks our fellowship with him. We have no connection. And God, realizing that this would be a problem, decides to fix it for you so that you don't have to stand in judgment for God and answer for everything that you've done wrong. Because if you did, you're doomed. You can't stack up enough good stuff to outweigh the bad stuff. You can't be good enough. And God knows this. And so Jesus says, listen, the judgment that you should stand for, I'm gonna stand in for you. I'm gonna take your place. But in this moment where he says, if it's possible, let this pass, what he's suggesting is, I'm gonna let them stand on their own. No grace, no forgiveness. Listen, we deserve judgment. We have it coming. But, but I wanna to suggest to you that if we understand this scripture this way, that this is out of character for Jesus in every way, shape, and form, and it's out of sync completely with the rest of the scriptures and their talk of this event. If this is just Jesus being human and thinking about himself in this moment, then how do we explain everything else? So I wanna start with everything else so that you can wrap your mind around why I'm suggesting this could be wrong and we've gotta come up with a different understanding. I wanna start in Ephesians chapter one, verse four. Paul is writing to a little church in Ephesus and he makes a comment about uh, God's plans, and he says this in verse four. For he, God, chose us in him, Jesus. So God decided that we would be in Jesus. That's how we would face our judgment. We would be in Jesus, not on our own, and because of that, we would have a chance to stand before God, and God would view us as righteous because he would view us through Jesus. <laughs> Look at what it says. For he chose all of this before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Before the creation of the world, his plan was that you would be in Jesus. Not just that. If you go to Revelations chapter 13, there's another layer too. There's, uh, this is kind of an aside that happens at the end of the verse. This verse is talking about what happens on earth with people who choose to believe or not to believe. And he says this about um, people in verse eight of chapter 13. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. And the Lamb's book of life is the place where people who have been rescued by God end up. And he kind of does a little apostrophe and he tells you who the Lamb is. He gives you some insight here. And this is what he says, the Lamb who was slain, Jesus, sacrificed. That's the lamp. And then he says this, from the creation of the world. There was a plan from before creation and then as soon as creation started, the plan was, you're, you're gonna die, Jesus. 
your, your slain. As soon as the creation process started, this, our plan is locked in. And from the beginning moments of all of this, our plan, God's plan for you, was that Jesus would come and you would be found in him. This is a plan from the beginning of time, before time was even created. What he had in mind was creating a world whose foundation was built on Jesus going to the cross for you. Does it make sense that at the last second that Jesus would throw up a Hail Mary and say, if there's any other way to get out of this, I'd like that. I mean, I'll do it, I'll do it. But this is a plan that was etched in stone from the beginning of time. I would suggest to you that it's not just a cosmic plan. This was a plan that Jesus thoroughly knew about and knew details about and embraced it. In Matthew chapter 16, we find the first time he's introducing this idea to his disciples that this is is gonna play out this way, guys. And he says this, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Does he know the plan? Does he know details about the plan? He does. He knows who's behind this. He knows who's gonna do this. He's he's preparing his disciples for what's ahead. He's telling them, listen, let's go. In Mark chapter 10, there's even more details, but how it gets said is what's fascinating. Mark chapter 10, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's on his way to face all of this. And this is what it says in verse 32. They're on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished. Why? Why were they astonished? Because he's been telling them all along what's going to happen when they get there. And instead of dragging this guy up to Jerusalem, he's out in front leading the way. What's going on? Doesn't he have a sense of fear about what's going to happen? Oh, the verse mentions fear. It says this. While those who followed were afraid. Everybody else was afraid. Jesus was not. He's out in front. On mission. Knows the plan. Are you sure he knows the plan? He's about to pull the 12 disciples aside. And he's going to tell them this. This is verse 33. He's talking to the just 12. There's a whole group of them going up. But now he's talking to these guys. And he says, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They'll condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles. He's known, he knows he's going to be given to the Romans. He knows this detail. And then he tells them how the Romans will treat him. Verse 34, who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus knows these details. He knows what's going on. And yet he finds himself out in front, leading the way. There's no mention of fear on his part. He's on his mission A mission that was ordained at the beginning of time, established a long time ago. 
Jesus knows the details. He's embraced it. He's not afraid of it. He's walking towards it in front. It's not just that. There's actually recorded in the scriptures a moment when somebody tried to interfere with Jesus' mission. If you go back to Matthew chapter 16, this first time that Jesus kind of revealed to his disciples that, hey, I'm headed to Jerusalem towards the end of my life. I'll be killed there. I'll raise again. And Matthew overhears a conversation between Peter and Jesus that he records. And it was a fireworks kind of conversation. Um, because uh, Peter hears that he's going to go and die, and Peter responds, responds strongly, no, 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 no. Your blood's not gonna be spilled. We're not gonna let this happen. Stop talking like this. The scripture records it this way. It says, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Like Peter felt, I need to slap you upside the head here. I need to get your thinking straight and I'm gonna set you right. And he says, never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. These are both said with explanation. He's saying this with intensity. You're not going down. If we get there and there's a fight, I'm gonna defend you. This isn't gonna go this way and we're gonna protect you. Stop talking that way, Jesus. Had to feel pretty good, right? Have somebody who loved you and cared for you saying I'm gonna protect you from this. I'm not gonna let this happen to you. Jesus' response, verse 23, Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. It's delivered with the same intensity that Peter delivered his. Are you kidding? Get behind me, Satan? Look at what he goes on to say. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I'm connected to God in a way you can't understand. I'm thinking about stuff that's important to this relationship. And if you're trying to prevent me from doing this mission, I see you as on Satan's team right now. Don't do it, Peter. Don't, don't prevent me from my mission. Don't be a stumbling block. Listen, this is, this is pretty aggressive pushback. Why? Because all the evidence is stacking up that Jesus knew before the creation of the world that this is how this would go. He knew the details. He had embraced this mission and there was nothing that was gonna stand in his way of accomplishing it. So what happened? I mean, what happened in Matthew 26? I mean, when we go back there, it, did what happened was Jesus got overcame and got tempted? Is that, I, I don't think so. In verse 41, he actually talks about that. Temptation's on his mind. And when it's recorded in scriptures elsewhere, we know when Jesus was tempted. But here, he says in verse 41 to his disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus had his eyes wide open. He was not being tempted into thinking about himself and wanting to give up on this mission. But it sure sounds that way. And yet, it's so out of sync with everything else that we see in the scriptures. A plan before creation was even established. 
an understanding that Jesus had and was out in front leading, I'm gonna go do this, and violent pushback against anything that might get in its way. Don't you would have think, if he was suggesting that I give up on this mission, that he would also categorize his thing with siding with Satan as well? Wouldn't that have made sense? So what else is going on here? I, I wanted you to understand that there has to be a really good reason to go searching for something else. And here's what I've told you. If you've been at Waypoint at any time, you've heard this before. But if you find something in the text that doesn't seem to make sense to you, spend some time there. Because it's either a truth that's not intuitive to you, that's gonna have to burrow into your heart and find a way to really change the way you think, or there might be something there that you don't understand rightly that we've read it from our cultural perspective, we've read it from our human perspective, but we haven't put it in the right context to understand what's going on there. So as I became uncomfortable with what this was saying here in light of everything else that the scriptures say about Jesus' mission, I started digging in. And here's some of the things I found. Um, the Greek word in this comment that he makes, um, let not this pass, let not this cup uh, pass, or let this cup pass for me, um, the word pass is parvukoma. Now that's, that's the Greek word, and if you go and look up the possibilities for what that Greek word could mean, there's three of them, and they're all pretty much in line. Pass by, pass over, pass away. And they all have the same kind of connotation. That if this is right, then the traditional kind of view of this is right on. That Jesus was saying, listen, I want this cup of suffering, this cup of pain, whatever's coming my way, I'd like it to pass. Did one of these jump out to you? Yeah, we highlighted it so it could. Passover. Jesus had just come from a Passover celebration. And the first Passover started when Israel, who were caught as slaves, unable to free themselves. God had compassion on them and decided that he would free them. And he was visiting plagues on Egypt. And the last one was the death angel. And if your home had its doorways covered in blood and you were inside, the death angel would pass over you and you would be spared. Is, is that the picture that we understand that Jesus has been preparing for this whole time. I'm gonna get to this point and I'm gonna ask for death to pass over me. See, it, it seems out of sync. It's out of sync with all the pictures that we find in the scriptures. It's out of sync with a meal that he just had with his disciples. So the question is, what else could be going on? What else could be happening here? Well, um, one of those things that I sometimes um, will look into if something just um, is not making a lot of sense is I'm not the only one who believes this. I think there are a lot of people who are now convinced of this. Jesus would not have spoken these words in Greek. He was a Hebrew man in a culture that was diametrically opposed to having Roman culture in their, in their world. And so they were trying to recapture and um, a lot has been found where they were speaking in Hebrew. He would have taught in Hebrew. And somebody would have taken his words and then translated them into Greek. 
So if you go and you find the Gingensburg Hebrew New Testament, and you ask yourself, what's the Hebrew word that Jesus would have used? It's the word abar, which is pretty close. You could understand why translators pick the Greek word pass, because pass is at the root of this word too, except there's one difference, and it's not small. This word means pass through. Now let's go back to our Passover in Egypt. See, in Egypt, if you had blood on your doors, the death angel would pass over. But if you didn't, if you weren't protected, the death angel would pass through your home and the firstborn would die. Which picture sounds right? Which picture sounds like, hey, we're kind of headed to this outcome? I think this idea of pass through is exactly what Jesus is talking about. And in light of other things that are said in the text, this stuff starts to make sense. So let me say it to you this way. Jesus is praying, and he says, if it's at all possible, let this cup pass through me. Why would he say that? Why is he having to ask that if it's possible? Well, if you saw earlier in the text, he said that he was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And I think it's quite possible that Jesus felt like I could die right here. Why? What would be so overwhelming to him? Is it his death? Is it all the brutalness that he's gonna face? Because that's what we would think. But you have to understand, he has a relationship with God that puts him in sync with God. And he understands the weight of the sin that he's about to take on. He understands the stuff that we've done to damage that relationship. He's looked back and seen it all. He's looked forward and seen it all. He's seen what we have the capability of doing to harm the heart of God. And he realizes, I'm gonna carry all of this. I can't believe mankind has betrayed us so deeply. And he feels the sorrow of that to the point of death, but he doesn't want to die in the garden. He wants to finish his task. Please, if it's possible, let this pass through me. I don't want to die here if it's your will. I want to complete my mission. Now, when you start to understand it in that terms, something else from the Passover meal starts to make sense too this Passover meal that he just came from would have had a cup. The modern Passovers, the ones that we're gonna practice um, next Sunday, is gonna have four cups on the table with four significant moments around each one of them. In Jesus' time, it was one cup. They all shared it, they all drank out of it. And, uh, and one of the things that happened is when the cup came to you, you were supposed to drink it as deeply as you could, and then it would be refilled for the next person to drink it. Except you see how, I don't know if you can see in the light, this is like Welch's grape juice. It's beautiful. It's consistent all the way through. That is not the kind of thing that would have happened with Jesus's wine. They didn't have the great filtering system, so the tannins would end up in the wine. And as it sat there, it would float to the bottom. And people didn't want to drink all the way because that was really bitter, nasty stuff. 
So when your turn came, you drank down here, then they filled it back up. You drank down here, you drank down here. But when Jesus said, I don't want this cup, or let this cup pass through me, he was suggesting, when this comes to me, I want to drink it as deeply as possible. Which means all the bitter dregs at the bottom of that thing, I'll take. I, I want to consume it all. I want to take in as much as possible before this passes on to humanity. I want to take the junk that you face and I want to carry as much as I can for you. Now some of you, some of you may be looking at your lives right now and going, man, I think he missed carrying my bitter stuff because I can show you the pile of junk in my life that's making me miserable. And I wish you would have taken more. And I just think you're missing the big picture. Um, when God chose to send his son to rescue you, to save you, he was doing so so that you could have freedom from the sin that you were enslaved by that you were carrying that weight all on your own. It was all you. And without God's help, you were gonna carry that and all the junk that comes into your lives. But because you were carrying all this junk that separates you from God, God couldn't even get close enough to you to support you. There was no relationship, no connection. And God understood life is gonna be hard but I'm gonna step into it with you. I'm gonna put my arm around you. I'm gonna walk with you. I'm gonna love you. But in order for that to happen, I've gotta take this spiritual weight away. I've gotta remove this from you. And his choice to send Jesus was all about that. And I'm convinced that when he was in the garden and he prayed, don't let this cup or let this cup pass through me. He was saying, I want it all. I want as much of their sin and their guilt and their shame, I want to take it all on. I want death to pass through me. I want to defeat it so I can turn around and offer you freedom. Freedom to really live. Freedom to actually be connected to a God who could support you. The kind of freedom that you don't have without me. And I'm convinced in that moment in the garden, you were on his mind. That he thought, I am so overwhelmed by sorrow. This could kill me. But I don't want to die. I want to see my mission through. I want to drink as deeply of the dregs as I can. I want to take death in and I want to beat it because what I want to do after that is turn around and look at the people that I rescued and say, I'm offering you life. I, pay, I paid a price for you, but I love you so much. I want to offer you freedom instead. And instead of thinking of himself, he was still thinking about the mission, about getting to the end of that, about taking on as much as possible so that you could be free, 
so that you could really live, so that you would have a chance to have a connection with God that you wouldn't have any other way. Forgiveness, grace offered to you because he boldly wanted to face death and defeat it. Listen, friends. Jesus loved you. And he loved you so much that even in the face of the worst kind of sorrow that he could feel, that he thought would kill him, he still wanted to finish his mission out of love for you. You are so loved. And he did it for your freedom. This morning as we close, I, I wanna give you 30 seconds to just think about that. The band's gonna come, they're gonna play a song that'll give you a little bit more reflection time too. But I hope you'll think about what God chose to do on your behalf out of love. Would you bow your heads with me for just a few? God, in my humanity, I would have prayed, get me out of this. But Jesus, who was passionately in love with God, had a connection, a relationship that we can't fully understand, wanted the cup, the bitter dregs, death to pass through him he wanted to complete the plan that was established before the creation of the world. He wanted to step up and rescue us. He wanted us to know how deeply we were loved. So God, I ask that you would help us to reflect on that today, that it would change the way we go out of here that your love for us would cause us to think differently about the things that we say and the things that we do. That we would rearrange our habits and patterns and priority to, priorities to honor you because you loved us so much. God, in a moment where we would have thought about ourselves, you thought about us. It's overwhelming. We don't deserve it. And yet we're here today because you followed through. You defeated death. God, may we embrace that love that you have for us and may it change us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. As we stay seated during this song.